All right, I want you to put yourself in this situation. It was a little after midnight on April 15th, 1912, and the Titanic had just struck an iceberg. And as the crew of the ship was starting to realize the actual crisis that they were in, the band on the Titanic was ordered to go and play dance music in the first class lounge because they wanted to keep people calm. And they kind of thought like a little levity, a little distraction would kind of almost like anesthetize the situation and help people not freak out about what was going on. And as the ship sank, survivors of the Titanic actually recalled hearing dance music being played, like waltzes and ragtime, um, while the ship sank. And I think that for us, so many of the half-truths that we half-believe are an attempt to almost like anesthetize ourselves against the pain of what it means to be human living in this world, especially this one. God won't give you more than you can handle. I feel like a lot of us have probably said that. A lot of us have probably had it said to us. And usually it's so well-intentioned, right? It's like we're encountering some kind of pain or difficulty and we just wanna to try to make ourselves feel a little bit better. Like, well, God at least won't give me more than I can handle. But in reality, I think this phrase is more like the emotional equivalent of like forcing someone to listen to ragtime music on a sinking ship. At best, it's a distraction from and even denial of how truly painful and unhandleable life can be. And at worst, it takes our focus off of God's power to sustain us through difficulty and it throws us back on ourselves in our own efforts to control for a life of prosperity and comfort, a project that it turns out is pretty futile. And so you see, when we turn to scripture, the Bible is actually completely unflinching in showing how broken and painful life is on this side of eternity. Life is more than we can handle. Death is more than we can handle. Sin is more than we can handle. And yet, the whole story of the Bible is about how God is so committed to showing up in those very places that are too much for us, showing up as the God who is with us and for us, rescuing us from all the things that are too much for us, sin and death, and redeeming all of it in Jesus Christ. And in that story, the simple actual truth is that there's nothing God can't handle. There's nothing God can't handle. And so if that's the truth, where did this half-truth come from? Um, a lot of people suggest that maybe it comes from a misinterpretation of this passage in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, no temptation has seized you that isn't common for people. But God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your abilities. Instead, with the temptation, God will also supply a way out so that you will be able to endure it. Now, I think this is a great lesson and why it's really important to read Bible verses in context so that we can understand 
what they mean. So 1 Corinthians, it's a letter. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth, which was in ancient Greece, and it was a church that he'd helped get started. And this church is dealing with like some pretty serious conflicts. And one of the conflicts is around whether or not followers of Jesus uh, should or should not eat meat that is from animals that have been sacrificed in pagan temples. And we're kind of like, oh, like, I don't, like, we don't do that here. So it's a little foreign to us, but it was a really big deal in Corinth for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, in Corinth, like in a lot of ancient Greek cities, most of the butchered meat that you would buy in the marketplace to cook and eat at home uh, would have been involved in some kind of temple sacrifice. There weren't really a lot of other options. And there were temples everywhere in Corinth. They were super into the Greek gods and they worshiped gods everywhere. And this was just embedded in every part of daily life, including grocery shopping. And second, gathering for meals in the pagan temples to eat this meat that had been sacrificed, it was like a form of social networking, like the way you would maybe have a work meeting with somebody at Starbucks or Caribou. You would go to the temple and eat your meat together. And it's like where you made your business deals. It's where you built these crucial relationships for your life. And so for Christians, this became a really tricky thing to navigate. And in his letter, Paul makes the case that even though it's going to be a costly personal choice, followers of Jesus should use their freedom in Christ for greater public faithfulness to Jesus. And therefore, they should refuse to eat meat sacrificed to pagan gods. And Paul, like, he knows there's a lot at stake in asking this of his church. Not only is he asking them to limit their diets, but he's essentially asking them to maybe jeopardize their social and economic status in their community. And that's when he tells them in 1 Corinthians 10, look, I get it. You're going to be tempted to just look the other way and eat the meat. It's so much easier. But remember, this temptation that you face because of your faithfulness to Jesus, it's so normal. God's people have always had to take these hard stands to resist temptation, and you can trust God to be faithful and provide for you in that so that you can endure this difficulty that I am asking you to take on. This encouragement, it is not dance music, on a sinking ship. It's not an overly rosy picture of what may be a truly difficult choice for the Corinthian church. But what Paul's saying is God might not take them out of difficulty, but he can be trusted to provide a way through it. This doesn't emphasize their ability to handle anything. Instead, Paul is amplifying the call to radically depend on God. In fact, I think for all of us, the degree to which we are able to resist temptation directly corresponds to how much we are trusting in and depending on God and his ability to handle things, not our own. And so when we read verses like this in context, I think it actually like exposes back to us our own assumptions of what we mean when we say God won't give us more than we can handle. Because 
handling it, at least in my own experience, usually means that suffering will be short-term, it will be solvable, it definitely means I will retain some kind of control over the situation and that the outcome of my security or prosperity will not be threatened, like we're all gonna be okay. Um, it means that I almost treat believing in God like it's some kind of vaccination against anything too painful happening to me. There's a recent study from the Pew Foundation that found among those who believe in God in the U.S., 56% of us think that God will grant good health and relief from sickness to believers who have enough faith. And with that, 46% affirm God will grant material prosperity to all believers who have enough faith. And to be honest, while that study says half of us believe it, I think it's more accurate to say we probably all believe it half the time because usually our definition of handling it means some version of this prosperity message. Like, we're okay with minor challenges, but nothing like what Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians. Nothing that actually touches our health or our wealth. Nothing that would make us more dependent. Todd Billings is a theologian in Michigan, and He's lived with incurable cancer for about 10 years. He was diagnosed not long after his second child was born. And this is what he says about his version of handling things. He says, I find myself drawn to this prosperity message, even if in more modest forms. I don't want a private jet or the accomplishment and fame of a basketball star, but I would like to live long enough to see my children graduate from high school. Something inside me feels as though God must or should want these things for me as well. However, when I hear scripture speak about prosperity, it moves in a different direction. In the wisdom of the God of Jesus Christ, human flourishing is cross-shaped. As we receive a reality that we have not earned with our drive or discipline, as a cancer patient and a father of young children, I suspect God may be up to something different than providing me with middle-class American prosperity. If our definition of handling things means controlling for our own security and prosperity, if it means that suffering is only short-term and solvable, then I think Billings is right. God is most certainly up to something different than that. In fact, the prosperity version of handling things never seems to be God's goal. And if we go back to 1 Corinthians, Paul is definitely encouraging his people to trust God's ability to handle things in a way that isn't going to look like immediate deliverance from suffering. Instead, he's saying God's going to empower you to faithfully endure through learning to depend on him even more. It's a vision of flourishing that is cross-shaped. In fact, at the beginning of his letter, Paul has already said, remember, even though the cross looks like weakness in the eyes of the world, it is a weakness that is stronger than human strength, for it is the power of God for those who are being saved. Because Paul knows that the cross of Jesus Christ, that is what it looks like for God to handle things. God handles things through the cross. In Mark 14, 
Jesus knows he's about to face the worst evil and suffering that can be thrown at him as he is preparing for the moment of his crucifixion. And he's all alone in a garden and he prays, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And in this agonizing, intimate moment, we see that God's way of handling our captivity to sin and death, it's not to evade suffering, but it's to enter into it. In the cross of Jesus, we see that God himself has not chosen the path of prosperity and ease. Scottish pastor Tom Smale says, Jesus did not attack evil by standing outside it in divine immunity and smashing it with the laser beams of supernatural force. Instead, he joins us on the sinking ship at the lowest point of our inability to handle anything. He says, I am here. I will not leave you alone here. Instead, I will pioneer the way ahead of you through the darkness of death all the way into the sureness of resurrection life so that you may know, even when you can't handle anything, I have handled it for you. And so if the cross is how God handles things, and friends, we don't have a God who guarantees a life free from difficulty. We don't have a God who ensures that suffering is going to be short-term and solvable. But what we do see from the cross is that when we face things that are too much for us, we can trust that we have a God who personally knows the depths of our sorrow, has passed through it victoriously, and promises that by the power of his love, our present pain will not have the final word. And so, if the cross is how God handles things, what difference does that make for us when life is profoundly unhandleable? I think that part of what we have to do first is we have to remember to recenter ourselves in the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. We have to recenter ourselves and remember that the story we're a part of isn't the prosperity story. It's not a story of our own self-made efforts. It is God's cross-shaped story. You can think of it like a play. Um, do we have any Shakespeare fans out here? Don't be embarrassed. You can raise your hand. Oh, amazing. Okay, so you're going to know this. When you hear the line, to be or not to be, that is the question. You know that you are in what play? You know you're in Hamlet. You're not in Romeo and Juliet. You're not in Macbeth. You're not in King Lear. You're in Hamlet. And similarly, when you hear this line, God won't give me more than I can handle, whether it's out loud from someone's lips or it's from your own heart, let that be a signal to you. Wait a minute. That, that's not the story I'm in. That's a line from the prosperity story. That's a line that invites me to trust myself. Instead, the cross-shaped story of God has lines that sound like this. My grace is sufficient for you. 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what happens when you begin to recenter yourself in the story of Christ's death and resurrection. And as we do that, a really helpful practice for us is to take time to intentionally name the ways that we do see evidence of God's presence at work around us, even in the low points. Now, I'm not talking about some kind of like cheap, positive thinking that papers over your pain. But what I do believe is that naming God's active faithfulness, like Corey had us do earlier, I believe that even doing that in moments of deep suffering, it is a practice that helps us learn to trust God and his ability to handle the things that we cannot. Isaiah 43 is a beautiful promise that God speaks over his people and it says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And the waters and the rivers here are like symbols of chaos and confusion. They're elements that destroy people and and kill things and sink ships. And what God is saying is in those very places, I am with you. I am like an alternative reality that is handling things even when you cannot. Your pain is real, but at the same time, I am also real and I am present. Once when I was going through a pretty difficult time, someone suggested to me that as as a way to help me do this, that I could take a piece of paper and just write a line straight down the middle, divide it in half, and at the very top, write the word and, A-N-D, and, in big letters at the very top. And on one side, I was supposed to write down everything that was painful and challenging, the, the waters and the rivers that felt like they were about to overcome me. So I would write down all those things. And then on the other side, I was supposed to write down all the ways that I could see God's presence still active in my life. And so on that side, I wrote down Bible verses that comforted me. I wrote down like the exact meals that people brought over to my house. I wrote down encouraging words from a text message from a friend. I wrote down the bag of groceries that someone dropped off on my front stoop. And that sheet of paper was like a reminder that like, yes, this circumstance is too much for me. It is deeply painful and nothing can exactly change or take that away. It's chaotic. I can't handle it. And the sufficient grace of Jesus is present to me, helping me endure and even embrace this cross-shaped story that God has for me right now. And of course, it's no accident that so many of the ways that God does show up to us in our painful places is through his people. Because when we center ourselves in the story of Jesus and let go of trying to handle everything on our own, we are free to invite others into our vulnerability. It is like this strange economy of God, friends, when we are weak, when our needs are great, when our capacities feel diminished, somehow that becomes like the exact place where God is at work to enable us both to give and receive his love in fresh and bigger ways. It's like we somehow become more spacious, more able to contain God's love, more able to show it to others. 
Todd Billings, who I referenced earlier, he has just the most exquisite story of this in his own life. After getting a bone marrow transplant, and he, he really started to struggle with like debilitating fatigue. He wasn't as productive as he liked to be as a professor at a seminary. And one day he was playing with his three-year-old daughter and the exhaustion just really hit him hard. And he said that he felt like sad and kind of guilty and a little self-conscious about the fact that he couldn't be the energetic dad that he so wanted to be for his daughter in that moment. And so he said, look, you know, sweetie, daddy can't play another game. I've just, I've got to lay down and rest. I'm so sorry. And this is what happened. He says, my daughter did not continue to ask me to play or to do other things for her. And so she grabbed a blanket and cuddled up next to me on the couch. And she stayed there. In a moment when I felt like I was about to fail because I didn't have the energy to be a lively dad, there was a different result. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And in that moment of vulnerability, Billings saw how he was actually better able to give and receive love to and from his daughter, not by pretending to be strong, on his own, but by admitting his limitations, admitting he couldn't handle it. And in that moment, his weakness actually became like a magnifying glass for the grace of God in his life that he could then receive in a precious way from his daughter. As we move towards closing, the band is gonna come up and sing over us words of this old hymn that you might recognize called, It Is Well. And I invite you just to take time to soak in those words and to consider the places in your life where maybe you've been trying to handle things, trying to control for an outcome of prosperity or comfort. And where might God be inviting you to recenter yourself in the cross-shaped story of Jesus? Where can you name evidence of his grace that is still present to you? Where can you invite others in? Because friends, life is more than we can handle, but there is nothing that God can't handle. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Amen.